I'm Shoya Bhutani, the co-founder and partner at Capital Connect Advisors, our boutique investment bank uh, headquartered in Singapore and New Delhi. This episode is a masterclass on all things funding. The startup funding winter is upon us. And in such a difficult environment, it is the need of the hour for founders to be smart and savvy about fundraising. Shorya Bhutani brings to the table an exceptional combination of being both young and a veteran of the PE space. And he is the co-founder of the boutique investment bank CapConnect. In this freewheeling conversation with your host, Akshay Dath, Shorya spills the beans on how to get your startup funded across different levels and how to be more strategic about engaging with an investment bank to raise funds. Stay tuned for some amazing nuggets about funding straight from the horse's mouth. So, uh, you're an investment banker. Uh, let's start by understanding uh, what, uh, what does a career in investment banking entail? What attracted you towards it? Uh, you know, like a broad understanding of the space. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll answer uh, what attracted me to it. Um, and it's probably not the typical answer, right? Uh, so growing up in um, in Delhi uh, and, you know, always being exposed to, I guess, uh, uh, movies, etc. I look very cool, you know, like investment bankers wearing suits. Uh, what out, was uh, Pretty Woman had inspiration? Uh, Richard Gere? Yeah. <laughs> It's it's pretty women's a bit uh, ahead of or before my time. So right, right, right. right. Um, Wall Street definitely, you know, <laughs> I mean, one of those, um, and some of the recent ones, Wolf of Wall Street, etc. But you know, as a kid, you're of course uh, quite impressionable, um, and you see this and uh, you think, oh wow, so cool, right? Uh, but that's what you know at that age. Um, so how it, what happened, I guess. Because of that, uh, you know, I chose to do a business major. One of the reasons I chose to do a business uh, business degree with a finance major. Um, and then one thing led to another. And, um, you know, I started working in investment banking. So probably that was the spark, I would say. Um, you know, if I wasn't fascinated, I would probably uh, not have taken the uh, business degree in a finance major. Uh, but... It's in uni when I started, uh, you know, learning more about uh, the nuances, the expertise required. It kind of, you know, I went deeper into it. Uh, and then I did a couple of internships in Singapore, which was, which exposed me to the working life. And as I did it, I just, you know, got more entrenched and I uh, just loved it in terms of what goes behind the scenes. Right? Um, and it's, of course, way different uh, to what you see in movies, right? I mean, it's... Uh, Outside looking in, it's uh, it's of course fascinating, etc. But you know, when you're working inside, it's basically a knife fight uh, in in mud, right? But uh, you should wow. enjoy you should enjoy doing that. Um, and you know, it's not um, it's not always uh, pretty. Um, it's uh, it's ugly, but you should enjoy both sides, right? So as as I started doing internships, I uh, got my first job on the investment side, not investment banking, but work with uh, you know some of the investment banks as our advisors, uh, you know, got to know how they work, et cetera. So it just attracted me. Then I left the investment uh, job and then joined a boutique investment bank. Uh, and, you know, uh, then they say uh, rest is history. 
So the difference between investments and investment banks is in investments, you are working with somebody who has money uh, and helping them invest that money. And investment banking, you are uh, your clients are people who are either seeking money or looking to invest money. That's right. So investments uh, is typically, you know, like a private equity or a venture capital for a fund or a hedge fund, which have the money, which they've raised, then they deploy it. So it's effectively the buy side, right? Uh, and in an investment bank, uh, typically, especially on the corporate finance side, you're the advisor. So you're, like you said, you're advising companies who are trying to raise money or sell their, sell themselves or uh, buyers who are looking to acquire smaller companies. So you're effectively um, the intermediary in the transaction and you're helping them. Yeah, and what are the different types of investment banks? Wow. Uh, I mean, these days, everyone, I mean, there's a lot of investment banks floating around, but I'll try to break it down, right? Um, so I'll start with the most known names and uh, they fit in the bulge bracket category. So, you know, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley. Uh, then you've got your mid-market banks. Uh, so these China. Goldman Sachs and all would be like doing hundreds of millions of dollars of deals uh, for yeah, large yeah. corporates. Yes. So the difference between, I mean, I guess what bulge brackets do is they do larger deals. Absolutely. But also they have more products to offer to their clients. Um, so they would do corporate finance, which is effectively, you know, advising on uh, m or advising on equity capital markets to raise capital. But uh, that a boutique bank would also do in a smaller scale. Uh, the additions where, you know, the, the bulge bracket kicks in and offers more products and more departments is... Uh, they have a sales and trading desk, for example, uh, you know, when hedge funds, et cetera, when uh, buy a certain security, they go through them. So they have access to uh, these assets and to facilitate the buying and selling of these assets, uh, whether it's equity or whether it's fixed income, right? Um, so it's effectively corporate finance plus sales and trading. And uh, some of the larger banks would also then include, you know, corporate banking where they themselves have a balance sheet and then they're lending uh, to their clients, um, Although it doesn't fit in uh, investment banking, but a lot of these firms have wealth management as well, where they're managing, you know, uh, larger family office money, uh, high high net worth individual money. Uh, so the typical advantage they have that all of these interact with each other, right? They have access to capital, they have access to the best companies, uh, and that's where the bulge brackets sit. Uh, at a smaller scale, also doing the same thing, uh, some of the mid-market banks, like Jefferies, uh, HSBC to an extent, uh, so it's bulge bracket, the uh, mid-market banks. And then if you take out everything, if you strip off everything around sales and trading and wealth management, et cetera, then you have boutiques, uh, which are offering corporate finance services. Um, and even within the boutiques, there are, uh, you know, some of the more established boutiques, which are competing with the bulge brackets on deals because of, uh, you know, their uh, experience set uh, and just because they're known like Lazard and uh, probably Julian Loki to an, ex uh, to an extent, uh, which are competing with the bulge brackets on a billion dollar plus deals. Um, then you've got uh, within the boutiques, you've got regional or industry specific boutiques, uh, which, you know, specialize, which is typically started by partners, you know, ex-partners from bulge brackets or ex-partners from mid-market banks who effectively wanted a larger share of the pie, right? They've built their relationships. They have, you know, expertise and they're like, okay, we can go and do this ourselves, but we'll do it in a very niche and focused manner. But uh, we're going to own more of the profits, right? Rather than giving it to uh, the shareholders of their previous companies. 
Uh, so these boutiques are offering, uh, you know, usually have very focused offerings that we have, we have expertise in this sector, we have expertise in this region. Um, so then they can niche it out and then start competing as well with some of the larger mid-market banks. Like, for example, somebody helping tech startups in India to raise money. So that would be like a boutique investment bank. Uh, yes and no. I mean, a lot of the mid-market banks would also help tech startups raise. I guess the difference would be that if you're a smaller startup, then it's probably a boutique, like a seed series A startup. Uh, you know, raising, say, you know, anything between a million dollars to $15 million, then that would be a boutique. But if you're raising like 100, 200, 300 million, then the mid-market start kicking in uh, to an extent, right? And it, by region, the size differs as well. So, yeah. Uh, who are the major investment banks in India? Or, and from a startup perspective, like if a startup was to raise that at seed round, who would they go to at a series B, C, D round? Who would they go to? Well, you should come to Capital Connect Advisors. I've heard that's a good form to bank. But, uh, you know, in case we're busy, <laughs> in case we happen to be busy, uh, no jokes apart, I think Avendis has done a great job, right? I mean, they were first out of the year. states? Um, across, I think, multi-stage. They started off, uh, They started. I think they started off about 20 years ago focused on advising technology companies and of course now have become this behemoth who offers like a lot of products, but Avendis still remains a very good option for uh, Indian uh, uh, technology founders. And they, they typically... Like, Even I for a billion dollars, you would go to yeah, Avendis? No, not so. I mean, I, they started Maybe off like with doing smaller raises. Okay. Yeah, they started off with doing with smaller raises. Now, of course, you know, um, these, it's just it's a natural progression. Uh, now they do bigger deals. Uh, but if you're a million dollar... Uh, if you're raising a million dollar as a tech founder in India, there's a lot of options, right? I mean, there's also a lot of uh, one-man bands, so to say, or which are you know experienced ex-bankers, etc., which can connect you up. Um, but these days, because the Indian ecosystem is you know so advanced, if you're raising a million dollars, you typically uh, would not need an advisor. If you if you have a solid product, solid value proposition, uh, you you can basically do without an advisor. Um, what, uh, what's the cost benefit analysis, uh, if as a founder, you were to look at whether to go with an advisor or not, there would be obviously some cost to it. What, if, what would that look like? What, what sure. would an advisor bring to the table? As a yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as, as a founder, um, to hire an advisor, I guess, I mean, the most scarce resource for a founder is his own time, right? Um, and they're doing so much, uh, you know, hiring, building the strategy, working on the ops, uh, doing BD, winning clients. So time becomes a very uh, scarce resource. So an advisor should be hired if a founder has not, uh, you know, previously raised any uh, funding um, and does not have, say, a network into the VC or the early stage angel syndicate, et cetera, community. So a founder, uh, advisor can come in and, effectively, you know, play that role. Uh, although uh, founders are expected to, uh, you know, do the pitching themselves, but all that goes behind in terms of, you know, preparing the deck and preparing data, financial model, et cetera, can be done by an advisor. But equally, that can also be done by an experienced CFO. Right? If you're raising a smaller round. Um, so this I'm talking about if you're raising, say, less than $5 million. Uh, so, I mean, then you should absolutely... Uh, you know, uh, do a cost-benefit analysis of your time 
and then hire an advisor or hire an experienced CFO to run the process. And what uh, what does this advisor cost? It's a percentage of what you raise or is it a fixed fee? How does it work? Yeah, so typically uh, we've seen um, advisors in India for smaller raises, you know, they take a percentage of the amount raised um, and uh, rarely or at least in the early stage, they also charge a retainer, which is offsetable against the success fee. Right. Uh, so, you retainer insurance uh, skin in the game. Yeah, I mean, I think the retainer plays two things, right? I mean, especially as if you're a one-man band, smaller advisor, or uh, it helps with the working capital, um, you know, because you're also committing your resources. And second, uh, probably the more important part uh, is that if I pay for something, I will value the services more and value uh, their time more. So as a found, as an advisor, if you get a retainer from a founder, like founders like, shit, I've paid for this, now I've got to, you know, better commit. Um, so, so yes, so retainer actually serves as a good tool for that as well. Yeah. And what does it cost typically, a ballpark percentage of, uh, like, single digit percentage of what you raise? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Absolutely. Anyone even double digit, man, that's like, you should run away, right? Doesn't follow. <laughs> um, so, okay. uh, it starts, again, it, it varies so much, Akshay. like, you know, it varies so much. Uh, but I think typically you would see anything as low as 2% to 5%. Is the, uh, you know, uh, in the middle, somewhere in the middle, with exceptional cases, of course, would vary. Uh, what we've seen, interestingly, some of the advisors do, which I think aligns the founder and the advisor quite a bit as well, is if you're an early stage founder raising money, instead of giving cash to the advisor, you do either a combination of cash and equity, right? So you take your fees as an advisor in cash, half in cash, say half in equity, right? Uh, so that commits you also like, Okay, we're here for the long term, right? We're not just here to like take your cash and run away. And it helps founders because as an early stage company, um, you need to preserve cash, right? You need to use cash for the right things. So as much as you can save, give equity. Uh, equity starts becoming very expensive once you, you know, start growing. So early stage, you're, you're okay to give some equity. Okay, very interesting. Okay. Okay, so uh, tell me about your own journey now in the world of investment banking. So you finished your master's in uh, business, that works? Yeah, so I did my master's in business with a major in finance out of uh, Singapore, Singapore Management University. Um, and the reason, I guess, just a bit of context to come to Singapore again was because it's the you know financial hub of Asia. Um, and of course, you, know, you can also uh, work in the India market while being based out of Singapore, so it's very attractive. Um, and my journey has been, uh, I would say, I mean, everyone says that journey has not been typical, but I would say it's, uh, you know, I would also say it's, uh, mine's not been typical. That's for everyone else to judge. Um, I finished my uni, joined is, uh, joined an investment firm investing in renewable energy. Um, so, uh, doing effectively, uh, investing in solar, uh, solar assets, wind farms in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, um, interned with them for a year before I joined. Uh, and effectively last year of uni, all I was doing is was interning, right? I was like, uni is done. Now I need to get real experience. Um, and yeah, I think at the cost of a bit of cost in my education, just to get real world education, I was interning for a year through and through. Um, so worked with them for about a year and a half. Uh, then um, joined, after that I joined a boutique investment bank 
uh, in Singapore and which is focusing on Singapore and Australia, effectively helping technology companies uh, raise funds, uh, but uh, also uh, M&A, right? helping, helping them sell themselves. Um, so the focus was pretty much Singapore, Southeast Asia and Australia. Um, I joined as the third employee with the firm and, you know, worked with them for about five years. Also, it was a smaller organization. So, you know, you could, um, at least in Singapore, it was a smaller organization. So the upward mobility was quite high. The responsibility and ownership was quite high as well. But as long as you delivered on that, you could move quickly. Right? Um, so I joined as an analyst there, then left, uh, worked with them for five years, helped them build out the Singapore business uh, and um, then left, when I left, I was a director in the company, um, and me and my colleague, uh, worked for the same company, uh, thought, man, I think it's time for us to do our own thing, right? I mean, uh, we can drive our own strategy and we feel confident enough that we'll be able to deliver more value to our founders if we have our own setup. So me and my colleague, um, from the previous firm, um, went and set up our own boutique investment called Capital Connect Advisors. Um, and why we felt confident Upshare was, I was 27 when I started that, right? And, um, I felt confident, of course, to have my co-founder with a certain set of experience, but also I think it's just up to my risk perspective. Uh, when you're early on, you can take certain risks, right? Um, and I always had this thing in my mind, although, you know, I knew that I had to get real world experience, do a job, is to do my own thing. Um, so it was a very easy decision for me. Like it was, at least in my mind, it was like quickly, right? Um, so yeah, uh, long story short, in 2021, uh, we set up our own firm called Capital Connect Advisors, uh, helping technology founders uh, raise money and helping them sell their companies. Uh, effectively focused out of Singapore. Uh, but uh, a year ago, um, and you know, I am Indian, uh, but... I am born and brought up in Delhi, but I hadn't worked one day in India, uh, but just couldn't ignore the opportunity. And there was so much buzz going around. I was like, I cannot sit in Singapore and be like, yeah, I'm only going to do like Southeast Asian deals, right? So a year ago, we expanded Capital Connect, uh, set up a second office in Delhi uh, and to effectively serve the Indian market, serve the Indian founders. Uh, so now we have, you know, of course, we're covering India and Southeast Asia, which is about 1.2 plus, 1.4 plus, uh, 2.1 billion people. Right? So that's a massive market for us, emerging market economy, etc. Um, so yeah, now it's been two and a half years. I'm proud to say it's been, uh, you know, it's only been two and a half years, but I've aged, I think, about five, six years. Yes, it is not, um, it's, uh, it is, uh, it is a high, uh, highly demanding job. Uh, but also a highly rewarding, especially when, you know, you're working for yourself uh, and, uh, you know, you can see the results being, uh, of course, to the rest of the people with yourself as well. Like it's, it gives you a lot of uh, satisfaction uh, when you achieve certain things. A couple of questions I want to zoom in on. So you spent about five years at uh, Northridge, I believe, right? That was the purpose. What did you learn there? Well, so much in five years, right? Because I was early on. Um, so I had, I have to say in general, you know, I've been lucky to now have had uh, great people around me, right? Uh, uh, my bosses, my mentors early on uh, were very good. Uh, and just absorbing uh, how they operate has been 
you know, or education in itself. Now, what if I learned, I guess you can break it down from, you know, technical to soft, right? From a technical perspective, of course, honed into, uh, you know, uh, how to, uh, on the financial side, how to model companies, how to understand the drivers of the companies, uh, how, you know, founders think about their growth strategy, etc., and then making it, listening to them or getting their information and making it into something which is understandable by, say, the investor side, right? So it, it requires, um, it doesn't come instantly. It requires, you know, a lot of deals you've got to work on, a lot of type of different, uh, you know, sectors you've got to work on. So just honing my technical skills, uh, of course, right? That's the obvious one. Uh, second, on the soft skill side, it's just, um, you know, I guess how to uh, interact with uh, investors, how to, you know, manage founders, uh, what gets them going, uh, how to unit position things. So that's more on the soft skill side. And I would say, you know, I think when you're aged between, say, 20 to 25 in our industry, it's about honing your technical skills because, uh, you know, that should never be compromised. Um, even if, you know, you're a senior banker, um, you have to have all the answers. Like my, I guess my framework or like my principles always don't, I would not ask anyone junior to me to do something which I can't do myself. Right? Uh, so honing your technical skills is becoming is, is very important from 20 to 25. But then really what kind of propels you forward is, uh, you know, soft skills around uh, people management, uh, you know, what drives uh, people, but also driving insights about your sector. Like, what do you, can you call this first than any, like most of the uh, other, other um, general public, so to say, right? And if you can call it first, then you can, you know, action it first uh, and, you move, you move faster. So it's a range of things. And of course, you know, my time with uh, uh, Northridge, I learned a lot from a lot of great people uh, across technicals, across soft skills. Also how to build a firm because uh, even that firm was about 15, 20 people. You know, they were building it up. Um, you know, how to do institutional building in general. So, uh, yeah. Technical skills means like working on presentation, crunching numbers, doing like a, DCF valuation of businesses, that's what we mean by that. Yeah, I mean, we don't, uh, now I think it's come back, actually helping in DCF valuation trades with community people. Right. Like, that's like, yeah. Uh, but yeah, valuation in general, sure. Uh, you know, uh, modeling uh, companies uh, on Excel, right? the basic, uh, the grant work, uh, building presentations, uh, information memorandums, teasers, uh, mm -hmm. building out the data room for a company, uh, you know, effectively, the data room is what investors look at when they're doing their due diligence. Okay. Um, right. So all of those things, right? I mean, it's... Okay. Uh, uh, you spoke about uh, taking a call uh, about something which you think is going to happen before others uh, reach that conclusion. Uh, give me an example of what you mean by that. Yeah, sure. So um, maybe i give you an example from... Uh, from Connect's perspective and where we've kind of seen and where we've been rewarded. Um, so in terms of just the whole boutique investment banking business, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's quite crowded. Right? There's a lot of uh, people offering these services. But for us, um, it was even to the call to, as a Singapore-based investment bank, who's, you know, I think we're, we're quite, uh, uh, We'd be quite good just, 
you know, doing business in Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, etc. Uh, but seeing that early on, uh, so Southeast Asia market is very, very interesting, right? But if we want to, you know, expand, do say larger deals, uh, we have to go and expand our market to India. Now, what we have as, you know, expertise set is network is that we have investors based around the globe uh, looking at tech assets. Uh, and they want to be investing in emerging markets. But taking that call around, we can offer them Southeast Asian assets, but the real actual scale comes from entering India. Right? And sure, it's not really a noble idea that, you know, like no one saw it enter India, right? People have been doing stuff. Uh, but I would say today, uh, I can make that statement and be 95% sure about it. In terms of a boutique investment bank focused on technology, the coverage we have is quite unrivaled, right? So no one in Singapore is sitting and thinking, okay, you know, we should go out to India as well. Uh, and why should we go out? Um, the other thing, I guess, is just the switch to M&As, right? And I think we spoke about this before. Um, the funding winter started hitting around, uh, you know, 2022 or started kind of settling in uh, and it's still going on. Uh, and people are still focused on doing cap raises. Uh, as advice, when I say people, I mean advisors, right? Um, but when we were speaking to investors, we, we saw there's going to be a pullback, right? So we, we started kind of, you know, engaging our, uh, ecosystem more on the M&A side. Because what we realized is that there's going to be a flight to quality in terms of where the capital is going, right? And a flight to quality in terms of not everyone's going to get funded. Um, the top guys are going to, you know, get funded or at least have enough cash that once the valuations go down, they're going to go after, uh, you know, the M&A piece. Even the corporates are going to go after the M&A piece. Um, so we started building the M&A case. Uh, I, I would think more early on than some of the other guys. And that served us quite well. Um, we're, we're currently running a range of M&As, uh, which are, you know, um, going to be announced uh, soon. And we're very proud that we did that early on rather than, you know, jumping late on the bandwagon. So these are small nuances. I'm sure I can think of, you know, other things. That's what I have right now. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, what it takes to build an investment bank. Does it start by uh, building a relationship with founders or with investors? Like what, what comes first? Yes. I'm yes. like chicken and egg kind of a question. Uh, so, Chicken and egg, and I just want to, you know, define the investment bank here. But I think what I'm referring to when I say investment bank is bank is a boutique investment banking shop which specializes in corporate finance, uh, which is helping uh, primarily offering two or three products, right? Which is uh, helping on M and A effectively companies who want to sell or get acquired, helping companies with private placements who want to raise capital to grow. Uh, and three is strategic financial advice, uh, which is, of course, embedded in the first two, but sometimes also as a standalone product. Uh, and this boutique investment bank, see ourselves, we're focusing on the mid-market. Um, so, you know, uh, growth stage uh, technology company, series BCD. Uh, so now I'll answer your question since I've defined it. Um, I think it takes, takes both. Uh, and also, uh, you have to, starting on, I guess, you have to convince one side 
that you'll be able to do the job and then take the, that side and then tell the other side that you have it. So it starts, it's like building blocks, right? So it's you build it slowly. It's not, you know, day one bang, you can just go and be like, yo, I'm advising. Um, I think it's uh, the quality I found to at least when you're starting on is to um, to be more flexible than some of the established players will be. Uh, to be even more optimistic, uh, you know, take the chances uh, and your chances of failure are high, but if you can succeed, then, you know, you've got this one basically brick now and then you can lay another brick and lay another brick. So it's, it gets built over time, um, especially as in early, in, in your earlier career or if you join like an already established uh, investment bank, then you're, then you're good, right? I mean, if today, even if someone joins us, they wouldn't need to do um, what me and my co-founder had to do before because we, you know, built that up. Uh, so it's it really varies, but if you're building from the ground up, even if you're building a career, like, forget like even investment. If you're building a career in investment banking, you should be doing all of this as an early, as a, a early employee, right? Uh, you know, making the connections, etc., leveraging your firm's connection. So then your kind of your firm's connections eventually become your connections because you know you've delivered value to them. Okay, okay. got it, got it. Um, you said that. Uh, it, you have to take more risks uh, when you're starting off. Uh, so risk here is because you get paid only if the fundraise happens. Uh, so there might be a company where another uh, advisor may say no because he thinks they'll not be able to raise, but you would still be yeah. a little more optimistic and work with them. And maybe some of those cases would work out, some of them would not work out. So, so that's what you mean by taking more risk? Easy. One of the elements, yes, but it's also, I think, just an opportunity cost, right? Some of some of the companies are fixer-uppers uh, in terms of, I mean, early on, right? This is in 2017 or uh, 16 when we were starting out. Fixer-uppers in terms of there's be a lot of work required, uh, groundwork required before we can take them to market. Some of the established players are like, man, I don't have, I don't have time to do this. Or like, uh, even if you do it, we don't. So that's when, like, I guess their extra work and the optimism has to kick in, right? That I can do the groundwork, prep them, and take them to market. Um, it's, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the main kind of risk, which is the opportunity cost and uh, the uh, closing risk. Oh, give, give me an example of a fixer-upper. Maybe you don't have to take a name, but hypothetically what it would look like and what you would do for them uh, to make them ready for a fundraise. Yeah, absolutely. So if it's here, um, and this is, I'm, I'm drawing from my experience very early on in my early days, right? So this is around 2016, 17, and I'll give you an example. Um, so it's here, series A company, uh, which is, uh, you know, got decent customers on board, uh, but don't have, uh, I guess, a full team built out, right? So the customers are built out only on the founders, uh, you know, founders capability. So effectively, the founders, still the CEO, the CEO, the chief business development officer, everything. Now he needs to get, if he wants to scale from, say, a million dollars in revenue to five million dollars in revenue, he needs to get a team in place. Okay. Uh, but before he gets a team in place, he needs to raise money um, to, you know, get get it there. Uh, but how is he going to raise money if he's doing four jobs? Um, so we come in, I guess, uh, and be like, okay, out of the four jobs, uh, you know, you keep continue doing, you continue keep doing that. We'll at least take the CFO out, 
right? We'll go and fix your accounts. We'll fix your metrics. Um, we'll go, um, you know, get into uh, everything and clean up your books effectively so we can present it in a way which makes sense. Then we'll go out to investors, do that, uh, you know, legwork, uh, market you while you keep, because it's, it's effectively, you have to keep afloat while you're doing the fundraise. Right? Um, so once we, you know, fix the, say, fix the uh, uh, metrics, fix the accounts, put it in a nice presentation, uh, put a data room, then we reach out to the investors, get him, uh, you know, the money. But as a typical advisor, what would be, if, if you didn't have to do this, you'd go in, you'd have a CFO there, you'd have like a CEO there. And the work for us required, the work required on our side would be much lesser, right? We'll just go like, you're the investors. We go and do all of these extra, extra jobs uh, so the founder can be ready to raise money. Uh, and, you know, it's, it pays off, actually. Um, whenever we've done this, and sure, we haven't always been successful, but when we have been successful with these guys, you know, they, they're like our clients for life, right? Our friends for life, even. Uh, so we so many times we've just been working for companies for like four or five years uh, because we did that extra stuff early on. Interesting. Okay. Um, what is, uh, do you also take a retainer in such cases uh, or because you told me at early stage, the retainer is part for the course. Uh, what yes. about at the stage which you have? Yeah, actually, the early stage is not part. Okay. In India, actually, no, rarely would you get a retainer. I have to say this. Okay. Like, just okay. Clarify. okay. Uh, uh, yes, I just have to clarify that. Well, ourselves and our fee model, uh, actually, if you're raising money, I can send you an engagement letter and, and that will define everything. But um, uh, yes, I mean, we typically work on a, uh, you know, the, our, our fee has uh, multiple elements to it. Okay. So like there would be some part of it which would come in as fixed, which could be adjusted, what you were saying, that adjusted against the success piece yes. eventually. Uh, or if it doesn't come through, then uh, that money still remains with you. Yes, I mean that's that's the retainer model. Uh, we've been we've been quite innovative on our fee models. I won't like go into details. Not not like a secret source or anything. But uh, our founders are always, uh, you know, happy to uh, pay us uh, in terms of once we've defined the value we can deliver. Um, so, okay, okay, got it, got it. Uh, you spoke about uh, providing strategic finance advice as a standalone piece in addition to fundraise and M&A. Uh, what, give me an example of that. Yeah, sure, sure. If for company says in between fundraises, right, or say between a series B and series C fundraise, and they don't want to go for a full raise, they want to say at least some debt, uh, they want to raise some venture debt or any kind of debt, whoever, even even debt against their inventory for working capital, etc. Uh, so a lot of these guys are, I mean, typically are long-standing clients. So they'll come to us and be like, you know, we're doing a small round uh, of debt. Can you make us? Can you make some connections? And also, can you advise us on how you would structure it? Uh, so you know, that's where I guess the strategic uh, financial advice kicks in. Um, also, I guess you know, on some of the it's typically it's, it's not very typical, but it happens when they're negotiating some customer contracts. Uh, which have certain provisions which might affect a future transaction, uh, you know, change of control provisions, etc. Uh, if you're, you know, affecting an M&A or planning to affect an M&A. Uh, so all of these things we'd advise on as well. Uh, anything ancillary uh, related to uh, 
transactions, capital, uh, that's effectively what we consider a strategic financial advice. Okay, got it, got it. Uh, you spoke about uh, building an MA practice out once you realized that the funding winter was setting in. Uh, what does that mean? Like, does it mean that you tell founders that, okay, instead of a fundraise, why don't you be open to MA as well? Or, or like, do you also have to create some internal capabilities? Or like, what does that mean to build that out? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say build that out. I mean, we've always offered MA services. I guess the switch was the, how much we focus on MA versus Capri. So I would say before the tech winter, we were probably, you know, about 70, 30 or uh, focused on cap days was 70 and now it's flipped right? so it's about 70, 30 now on m and cap days uh, there is internally uh, no specific uh, capability to build out other than uh, you know double down on uh, your sectors in terms of where you've done deals and where your buyer network sits um, because it's uh, uh, m and are very you know of course highly strategic uh, I'll give you an example, right? So if, say, uh, oh, Excel, which is a venture capital firm, will fund probably 10-plus sectors, 15-plus subsectors, right, across the tech, health tech, uh, fintech, commerce. But if you're a quieter, you wouldn't, if you're running an M&A, your acquirer would probably fund two or three sectors, basically, and the universe reduces, so you have to be very specific. Uh, so I guess that's, uh, that you have to know where, you have to know the sector you're focusing on and you have to know where uh, the appetite, appetite lies for your uh, acquirers in that sector, right? Um, so see in your media uh, sector, it's, is it, you know, are they focusing on buying more agencies? Is it programmat uh, programmatic ads? It's What is that? So it's based on that you pick up a target or you pick up or a client specifically say, okay, we can, you know, uh, confidently say that there'll be enough interest, right? You can't guarantee the execution. Since we're in touch with uh, potential corporates, corporate acquirers in the space, or larger tech companies in the space, we know there's you know appetite for a certain business model, a certain revenue scale, a certain you know geography focus. Uh, so that's that's where you have to, I guess, sharpen up if you're you know focusing or flipping on the M and A side, because um, what you don't want to do as a smaller firm is uh, take bets. Uh, you want to be, I mean, of course, there's always a risk of completion. We try to reduce that risk by uh, knowing what's happening in your sector and having those acquired contacts. That's actually, I guess that was the flip. You know, we started uh, doing more of that. Uh, that was the which. How much of your business is driven by the people who have money and how much is driven by people who are seeking money? Like seeking money could be either looking to raise or looking to sell. Uh, so which side? Correct. Sell side or buy side. So typically we do sell side. Um, I would say it's uh, 70, 30 as well, or probably 60, 40. Uh, okay. More towards. Uh, so yeah, we typically would do sell side. And we, uh, and this is typical across all boutique investment banks that sell side dominance. Yes, yes, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, it's, a gen uh, it's generalizing, but I can say that's yes, that's true. Because they. Uh, they need advice more because they are in need of money. So they're more willing to pay for advice and pay for connections, pay for facilitation. Yeah, and also more volumes, right? Just more, more of these guys seeking 
money. Uh, and some of the bigger guys, the acquirers, uh, either have their own setups, they have a fully built out M&A team. Uh, they do work with advisors sometimes, like a lot of times, but they, with the nuance that they would typically have their own M&A, a corp dev team uh, inside. And if it's a large corporate, then they, you know, have longstanding banking relationships, which the, some of the larger banks would serve rather than the deep banks. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, so if you get a mandate from a business that wants to sell itself, uh, this largely depends on uh, the knowledge base inside the team over there, or do you also have other ways to find who are good buyers and reach out to them? Like, like is it a very human-driven approach, or are there tools which kind of enable the process of discovery and outreach to potential buyers? Well, it's it's a combination of both. Uh, you can't possibly know any everyone you know, yourself, uh, so we rely, you know, we have our proprietary, uh, network of, uh, not proprietary, but, you know, our own built out direct network of acquirers. Um, then we supplement that with our partner firms, which are based all around the world. You know, we have partners in US, in Europe, in Japan. Uh, these would be other boutique investment firms or Typically, boutique banks or mid-market banks, um, you know, we've known for a while and we trust uh, and have worked on deals before. Uh, so we would, you know, rely on them to augment our already existing network. And some of them, you know, there is always some left, which uh, you have to build a first connection. So as long as to a founder, and this is sort of founder selecting an advisor, right? long as the fund or the advisor can demonstrate that they know 70, 80% of your university universe from a first degree or a second degree type connection. I think that's, uh, that should suffice. Um, so I would also, I mean, just now advising founders perspective, right? Um, I would, if I'm selecting a M&A advisor, give them they ask for an exclusive mandate. I give them subject to uh, them okay with some outside parties supplementing their network, whether it's advisors, whether it's the founder network, and they get paid a lower fee there. So this is just, you know, advice to founders negotiating engagement letters. What as a founder I found, <laughs> founders is found, um, this is you should not do is have six bankers running around, six different banks running around and you're thinking, you know, I'm going to play the diversification game and volumes game, whatever hits, like it's effectively throwing mud at the wall, right? Whatever sticks. Uh, but that actually count is very counterproductive because there's no one, you know, driving a transaction strategy. No one is, you know, managing a coordinated process. And um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if that was your question, but I think that's just very important point. No, that that's interesting advice. Um, uh, tell me something that, is there a, uh, macro reason for why there is a funding winter. Is it just that the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and stuff like that? Or what, what, what are the macro reasons for it? I mean, Russia-Ukraine conflict, I think, of course, uh, you know, uh, is one that amplifies it. Uh, but actually, I guess, I mean, I, you probably know this more than me because you've seen more cycles. Um, is that there was just the craziness which was happening in like 2020, 2021. Uh, especially after uh, or during COVID, the overpromise of digitization, people were just, you know, uh, uh, you could not, that, that 
that was that could not have lasted, right? And sure, in retrospect, everyone's like, yeah, of course that would not have lasted. But sure, we live in retrospect. So I mean, one is uh, this several reasons, right? So one is of course the uh, COVID nineteen boom, which had uh, which the technology sector faced, like you know now uh, everything is going to be digitized, etc. And like you know, uh, then that in in the hope of a post COVID nineteen world that you know technology adoption is just going to go. So it did, of course, you know, help that, but there was a bit of overpromise there. Um, second was uh, because of COVID, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, subsidies, etc., which went out uh, by the and everything. A lot of things are driven by US um, to subsidize the guys who you know lost their income, etc. Um, and once COVID subsided, they like okay, we've you know we we did all these subsidies. Now who's going to pay for it, right? Um, so they had to adjust the interest rates, uh, and then the interest rates. Interest rate is actually the main thing here, right? Which makes the world go down. Uh, from uh, the source of capital, say the endowment funds, even the governments, etc. Now they're like, okay, we want to hire a return, right? Um, and then they go to their. Uh, where they deploy money, the private equity firms, the venture capital firms, they're like, okay, you know, we don't give, give you as much money now, or, you know, we're expecting higher return. So money gets constrained. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, that coupled with the Russia Ukraine war, the crazy valuations which were going on, like super unsustainable, right? Uh, it had to come. And I, I think this is, uh, this is one of the best times, actually. Although I haven't, like, I'm not, like, I don't have a 20-year career. It is an eight, nine-year career. I, I feel like you know, this, uh, it's a very good time uh, to operate. And I don't want to be insensitive because, you know, a lot of the companies are uh, dying down, etc. But I think in general, it's 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 what's needed. Uh, not companies dying, but this, you know, this uh, kind of uh, rewriting of business fundamentals, so to speak, and everyone, you know, making sense by the way, right? Making Building from something which which makes sense, uh, so I, I I actually quite enjoy this time. You're saying that anyone who survives this funding winter is uh, sure to scale and grow big, uh, because this uh, there is a like you're forced to be more disciplined and so on. Yeah. So not everyone who survives, you know, I think everyone will face different challenges. It's not going to be funding winter; it's going to be something else. Uh, but. Uh, uh, you'll be more battle-hardened and you'll have a higher chance to survive. Of course, you know, there's a survive, survivor's bias. Whoever survives has survived. Uh, but uh, there will also be casualties which probably didn't deserve. Right? So, I mean, I think we have to be aware that not everything is black and white, I guess. But there are um, there are companies who uh, were relying on funding in 2023 or late 2022 and they didn't know or, you know, they didn't plan and it hit them. Uh, suddenly, so those companies died out, and they, those some of them, you know, must have been great companies, great founders, good products, uh, and that's why I guess you know, just coming back, uh, it's not just about I guess great, great founder, great product, but how you can navigate uh, the times. Right? So, um I would, you know, what we recommend a lot of the companies who come to us for fundraising. This was to you. Um, I didn't actually answer your previous question. Was that do you advise an M and A? Uh, absolutely like you know whatever it takes to see the next day or definitely consider it right could be uh, could be actually a hidden opportunity now, as a founder how do you decide how much you should raise 
uh, is it dependent on what's the demand for uh, like is it dependent on investor demand or are there like some rule of thumbs or like Yeah, so it shouldn't be based on investor demand, I would say, at least as, as a starting point. Because um, then, I mean, you have to plan actually for your business right not how much demand. So I guess um, the main thing here is uh, the runway. Right? You've got to see how much money you need to survive uh, for, especially if an early stage uh, startup burning cash, right? This is not for growth stage startups, looking for growth investments profitable. I'm talking about early stage startups. Um, you have to survive, say, you know, typically 18 months, 24 months. Uh, 24 months might be a larger amount and might force you to dilute a lot of thing, uh, a lot of your shareholding. So, you know, 18 months is recommended in a good market. Uh, but in this market, if you're getting money for 24 months, just average, right? Uh, but typically, you would say 18 months in runway. Um, and as a thumb rule, again, like, you know, varies, but uh, not more than 20% dilution. In terms of, you know, between 15 to 25% is what's recommended. Um, so you have to, of course, you know, see your dilution as well. And then when you have a number in, when applying this number one in, in factors, when you have a number in mind, then you go out to market and say we're raising this. Then that that's when you see if there's demand or not. Uh, um, let me give you an example. Um, so let's say someone is building a SaaS business. Uh, they could also build it with half a million dollars. They could also build it with $2 million um, because with half a million dollars, you'll probably go slower. You'll probably try and figure out some way of revenue coming in sooner. Uh, you'll not invest so much in, let's say, hiring product managers and so on and so forth, but you'll focus more on a basic tech uh, being in place. Uh, so, I mean, you could go either ways, right? Uh, and especially at early stage because it's not like your burn is uh, etched in stone. You can, uh, you'll get to hire people to create your burn. Um, so how do you decide at that stage that what should you, uh, that should you be ambitious and say, I want to raise 2 million or should you be conservative and raise half a million and, uh, you know, go, go through the MVP approach? Yeah, it's, there are no easy answers here, right? And it's also so subjective to the sector you operate in. Uh, and maybe one way to think about it is that so purchasing raising two million versus four million, right? Um, know that that four million uh, comes at the cost of dilution, or uh, and uh, do you really need to go that fast? And in some sectors, that's the answer, right? Because your competitors can close in and lock you out. Um, so I, I guess there's a lot of nuances in terms of, you know, go fast, go slow. No one can answer that for a founder because they know their business the best. And also they know um, what probably we can't assume that they know, but people around them know that uh, this is the right uh, pathway given that, you know, we have experience in the sector. So it's very hard to answer. I guess you've got to, you know, balance a lot of factors. For a SaaS company, as you said, right? It's very specific. You said SaaS company. Uh, then, I mean, I guess you just got to take stock of the competitive landscape, uh, see, you know, is there a product out already there, which is being adopted by your ideal, you know, typical customers, then you need to go fast and, you know, lock them out. Uh, if you think it's, you know, a new product, uh, where you can win, see a few marquee clients, try it out, 
uh, a lot of the SaaS companies have seen uh, serving enterprises, especially, uh, you know, the first customer actually serves as a testing ground for them. So you actually need, uh, if you're an MVP stage, seed stage, pre-seed stage company, you raise your a million dollars to run your tech, your product, your ops, uh, and then get that one customer first, right? Let them pay for, I mean, that's another thing. Let them pay for your product development and go from there. Um, so there's, again, so many nuances there. Right, right. Uh, and I believe at that stage, whether you raise a million or two million, you will end up diluting similar amount, right? Like you'll still end up diluting 20s percentage. It's just that maybe you go to a different set of investors if you want to raise half a million versus if you want to raise two million. Yeah, then you will see. Got to, then you've got actually factored for appetite, right? Um, yep. Some of these, some, some actually, you know, it serves you sometimes that you have no revenue in the company, and you're doing like a pre-revenue raise, right? Uh, because then it's all like your convincing powers and how which sector you're in, if it's hot or if it's you know if there's invested demand. Then actually, you have to like qualify invested demand because you're right. Like, uh, if I'm raising. You know, if I'm a pre-seed company, pre-revenue company, uh, raising or uh, raising the round, I can raise a million and raise five hundred k and make a uh, make a case each way that this is the valuation of the company, right? Um, so absolutely, absolutely. In that case, then you have to see what the invested demand is if you have a good team. Uh, but I guess the pitfall there, which I found, is that sometimes, you know, when you raise at a higher valuation. Uh, early on, that that valuation is like, or uh, it's it's you're you're stuck with that, right? In your future raises, you might not be able to. Uh, so I'll give you an, I'll give you a very specific. So I won't name the company. I'll give you an example. Right? So say company A raises five million dollars, or say uh, raises five million dollars at a twenty million seed. Uh, uses that in eighteen months. Now it goes back to market. Uh, raised to, to do raise 30. Now the market has changed because the multiples are different. But your VCs, your VCs from the first round won't let you raise anything below 20, right? Um, or would at least not like it and you'd be, you know, forced to put those multiples are not justifying it. So the investors who you want on board, they'll look at it and be like, there's no way I'm going to invest it. You know, that valuation, uh, your metrics don't support it. Um, you got you know, funded your previous round 20 valuation actually does not mean anything to me because that was a different market, different valuation set. Uh, so adjusting back to, uh, you know, reality becomes very tough for founders. So actually sometimes it's, uh, you should, of course, you know, protect your dilution, but don't go crazy with your valuation because that's just a number at the end, right? Net net is like, I mean, you've got to still grow, you've got to still raise more money and, you know, you've got to exit and get the cash. So I, I think you to be very aware of these things. Oh, interesting. That's a good perspective. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot That's ad at T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-M dot in.